Hi everyone, I'm Sofia and I'm the MC for this session. Thank you guys all so much for being here. Um, so I'll give a brief introduction to the session and also to Spencer. So the session title for today is um, a workshop to improve your decision making. And um, the, what you're supposed to do is bring a decision that you're grappling with to this interactive decision making workshop. So Spencer will teach you guys elements of good decision making and have you apply them in, to a real decision that you need to make. And um, as a reminder, if you guys have questions throughout the workshop, um, put up your hand and I will just repeat them and pose them to Spencer. Um, and just so we make sure that everyone else can hear them. Yeah, so to introduce Spencer, Spencer is an entrepreneur and a mathematician with a focus on improving human well-being through social science. He's the founder of clearerthinking.org, uh, which provides more than 70 free tools and training programs related to the topics um, like decision-making and cognitive biases, um, used by over a million people. So he's also the founder of Sparkwave, a startup foundry that creates novel software products from scratch designed, uh, from scratch designed to solve problems in the world. Um, I'm really excited for the session, and I hope you guys make some good progress on some of the decisions. I'll let Spencer take it away. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah cool. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Hopefully, uh, oh wow, I got a lot louder. <laughs> Hopefully you'll uh, learn some things about decision making today. They'll help you in your life. Um, I want to make this really, really practical for you today. That's why you each have a worksheet. And on the first exercise on the worksheet, I've asked you to think about a real decision that you have to make in your life so that you can keep it in mind throughout this little workshop um, so that everything we say it can be directly applied to what you're really doing. So I know some of you have already started writing down uh, exercise one. But if you just came in, please grab a worksheet. And I'm just going to give you um, a couple minutes now to start to just finish off exercise one. Please stop after exercise one. Don't do exercise two yet and think about a real decision that you're making in your life. If you don't have one that, that's an important decision, you could think about a past decision or a hypothetical decision that's the sort that you're likely to face. And then once you've done that, the second part, are, the second part is just coming up with options for what you might do in this decision. Um, and then we're going to be doing more work with them in a moment. So just take a couple minutes now to fill that out, and then we'll begin. So I like to think of an embodied metaphor for decision making. I like to think of it as we're adventurers and we're going across these mountain ranges and we're trying to get to these goals we have. You know, so maybe one mountain range is like having a marriage and another mountain range is like getting a job and so on. And I think it's useful to think about then decision making as the interaction between your environment and the choices you make that lead you to different places on this mountain range. And so I'll keep going back to this metaphor as we think about different mistakes that we commonly make when making decisions. Now, the first thing you might think about when you're, when you're thinking about these different mountain ranges you're trying to get to is that there's an underlying reason you're trying to get to them, right? Like, well, why do you want to be married? Like, maybe you want to be married because you think it's going to make you happy. Maybe you value positive relationships. You know, why do you want that job? Well, maybe you think it's going to help you reduce suffering in the world, or you think it's going to be very meaningful for you. Um, so there are these sort of underlying reasons we're trying to get to these different points in the mountain that we should be taking into account when we're thinking about what decisions we're going to make. And so this leads to the first pitfall I want to tell you about with regard to decision making, which I call non-directedness. It's when we're trying to make a decision, but we really don't know what we're trying to achieve in that situation. We don't know what we're trying to get out of the decision. And a common case, this is actually this happened the other day, a friend was writing a very sensitive text message and asked for my opinion on it and said, do you think this is OK to send? 
And the thing about it, I think that we have often all experienced this where we're like writing something, we're like, well, I don't know, is this good? Is this achieving the goals that I want? And so my first question for my friend was, okay, tell me about what you're trying to get out of sending this message. And then once we broke down sort of the different elements of like what's at stake in that situation, then we could evaluate that message and say, well, is it doing a good job or not? And how can we make it better? So non-directedness is really about not knowing where you're going with the decision and therefore not knowing what choice is best. So I like to think about this from the point of view of intrinsic values that intrinsic values underpin our decisions, sort of the thing that we're getting at with our decisions. Um, so to give another example, suppose that a friend asks you for feedback on the book that they wrote. And suppose you read it, but you think it's really terrible. Right? So you have these two choices in front of you. One, you can tell a hurtful truth. And if one of your intrinsic values is truth, this is good from the point of view of truth. And another value you might have is that you want your friend to achieve their goals. And maybe by giving them this honest feedback, maybe they'll be better in the future at writing books. Maybe it'll help them with their career being, uh, being an author. On the other hand, you could tell a kindly lie. And this is good from the point of view of your value of not causing suffering to your friend. Um, and also, maybe it's good from the point of view of having a positive relationship. Maybe if you think you're too honest about how you feel, maybe that could damage your relationship, right? So once we've laid it out in terms of intrinsic values, what's helpful about that is now we see what's at stake and we see the trade-offs. The, a hurtful truth and a kindly lie, there's serious trade-offs there. And where you're going to fall on that decision will depend on how much you value these different things. We did a bunch of research on intrinsic values trying to understand what are the things that humans value. And after a bunch of research, we concluded that we were able to come up with 22 categories of things. So there are kind of a lot of things. Things like truth, happiness, longevity, justice, equality, and so on. And we actually made a thing called the Intrinsic Values Test. You can take it for free on our website, clearthing.org, if you want to explore your own intrinsic values. Now, when you're talking to effective altruists, sometimes people will say, oh, I only have one value, and that is like maximizing utility in, in the universe or something like this. Now, what I would say to that is that there are multiple things that your brain values. So you may be convinced by like logical arguments that there's only one thing you should value, but there's still other things your brain values. And if you're like going to the store and buying a salad, you're not optimizing for maximizing utility in the universe. You're optimizing for things like, well, what do I like to eat and what's going to give me energy throughout the day and so on. So I would argue that you very likely have multiple intrinsic values, even if you have a philosophy, you're convinced by a philosophy that says there's only one thing that's like objectively valuable. But I think for most people, what you'll find is actually they have quite a few intrinsic values. When we ran these studies, we found that people often had dozens of them, so not, not a super small number. One last thing I want to say about intrinsic values, it's very easy to confuse them with other things. Um, so take cash, for example. Cash is valuable, but it's not intrinsically valuable. It's instrumentally valuable. And the reason is because it gets you things you want, but it itself uh, is not something you inherently value, right? Intrinsic values are things you value for their own sake. But imagine you couldn't use money to buy anything, you couldn't use money for social status, you couldn't even burn money to stay warm, right? It would have no value. If you were on a deserted island with a bunch of cash, it wouldn't help you in any way, right? So we only care about cash because it gets us other things. Our intrinsic values are different. They're the things we value just for, the, for their own sake, not because of something they get us. All right, so this is takeaway number one. I want to leave you with, when you're making a really difficult decision, a really thorny decision, Consider what intrinsic values of yours are at stake. What are the trade-offs between them? And I think that can often give clarity in decision-making. So this brings us to our next little exercise I'd like you to do on your exercise sheet of paper. You'll have four minutes. It's a little intrinsic values exercise to think about what are the intrinsic values at stake? What are the intrinsic values being traded off against in this particular decision you wrote about? So I'll give you four minutes now. All right. 
So now I'd like you to find a partner. We're going to do a little tiny group exercise. Um, we'll be doing more of these uh, throughout the rest of the workshop. And so um, get a partner, so a group of two people. And then I just want you to explain very briefly what decision it is that you're working on and which of your intrinsic values are at stake. And the listener's job is just to ask clarifying questions about anything they don't understand or anything that they're curious about. And we'll just do it two minutes per person, so it'll be very fast, so four minutes in total. And then uh, I'll tell you when to switch partners. Or, or, sorry, I'll tell you when to, to switch who's talking. And, uh, and then we'll keep coming back to the partner throughout the night just to do more group stuff. So uh, please do that right now. All right, so I know that wasn't enough time, but we got to keep moving, and we'll keep, getting, we'll keep getting into it. So the next common decision-making mistake I want to talk to you about is one I call narrowness, or sometimes it's called narrow framing. And so if you take a look at these two paths here, you can think about, well, do I want to go on the left path? Do I want to go on the right path? But if you kind of take a step back, you're like, wait a minute, maybe there's, maybe there's more paths than I've considered. And I think many of us have experienced things like this where we've sort of noticed in retrospect, oh, wait, maybe there's other solutions to this problem, right? Um, one that I think comes up quite a bit, that I've seen come up, someone will be like, oh, do I quit my job or do I keep doing what I'm doing? And then, well, okay, maybe there's other possibilities. You know, it depends where you work, but maybe there's a way you could renegotiate your role and what it involves, or perhaps there's internal transfers to your company, right? Depends on your situation. But the point is, often we fixate on two salient options, and we're just like, my decision is between A and B, and very often, there could be other options that we haven't considered. Um, and it's interesting to think about. Your choice is only as good as the best option you've considered, right? So if you can put more options in the option pool, well, you might be able to find a better choice than the ones you've thought about. And uh, we ran a small study that was, had super interesting results. I wouldn't generalize too much because it's a pretty small study. But basically, what we did is we had two groups. One group used our decision advisor tool, which is a tool on our website to help you make decisions. If you want to try it out, it's a clearthing.org. Um, the other group had the same tool, but they had an extra thing added, which is that we required them to come up with extra options for what they could do when they made the decision that they hadn't considered before. We just said, we're not letting you proceed until you generate more options. And 25% of those people ended up picking one of those as their best option at the end, which is kind of crazy that like just by like forcing them to come up with more options, that they found something, 25% of them, and were like, oh, wait, that's actually better than what I was thinking of. So... Um, I really think there's something to this that we often anchor too quickly on options and we don't get creative enough. And um, so this, this brings me to takeaway number two. We often don't generate enough, op enough options when we're making an important decision. Obviously, with a trivial decision, this doesn't apply, right? If it's a really simple decision, maybe it's not worth it. Um, so just consider generating more options when something's really important. And so this brings us to our next exercise. This is a solo one. So it's on the worksheet. It's about considering more options. So please do section three on the worksheet, solo exercise three. And you'll have five minutes. All right, let's keep going. So this takes us to pitfall number three that I wanted to talk to you about, which I call soloing. It's We're trying to get to the top of this mountain peak, and we forget that many, many people have been there before us. Many people have already taken this adventure and can tell us about it. Um, I think very often we try to make difficult decisions alone, and there's just so many ways that people can help you in that process. And so there's three particular ways I like to think about. Um, the first is talking to people that you might call experts. They're people that have either done that course before or have relevant expertise. Um, so imagine, for example, if you're thinking about going into academia, 
You could talk to people who are academics. You could also, importantly, talk to people that were in academia and then quit, right? They're gonna have really relevant things to say. Um, the second type of people are people who are wise, uh, by which I mean people who are good decision makers, who you respect their, their judgment. And it's often use to, useful to talk to such people because they can tell you about how they would approach the decision, or they can give you things to think about that you might not have considered. And the third type of person is just a person who wants to be helpful, who will listen as you tell them about the situation, and essentially you'll clarify your thoughts through this, their open-ended questioning. So they don't have to do very much, just be a sounding board, ask you questions and listen, and that, that itself can be really helpful. So I think there's just a lot of different ways that we can uh, lean on other people when we're making difficult decisions. So this is takeaway number three. Uh, don't go it alone for really important decisions. Other people's experience, their wisdom, and even just their clarifying questions can really help you. All right, so this brings us to the next group exercise. Uh, please partner up again with your same partner. And just for, you're each going to have three minutes. So it's going to be six minutes total. And basically what's going to happen is, um, very briefly, you just remind your partner what your decision is. And I want you to think about, imagine that you're kind of making the case for each of the two options that you narrowed it down to. So first you're going to make the case for the first option. Um, and then you're going to make the case for the second option. And so just about 30 seconds each, and it'll be very fast. And then your partner is just going to ask you open-ended questions of anything that they're curious about or they don't understand or they want to dig into. Um, so please do that now. Find your partner, and you'll have three minutes apiece. All right, switch now. Switch. So we've already talked about uh, three different pitfalls. We talked about non-directedness, where you don't consider which of your intrinsic values are at stake in the decision. We talked about narrowness, where you consider too few options. Uh, we talked about soloing, where you don't get enough help from others. I also just want to touch on three other ones really quickly that I think are, are really common. Um, the first one is avoiding. Usually the thing you're avoiding in a decision is pain or anxiety or fear. Um, I think we probably all can relate to this, where there's a situation where one of the options is just really painful, even if it could be better in the long term. And for example, this will come up in relationships where, you know, let's say you have a relationship where you know you and your partner are just not the right fit, but the idea of breaking up is so painful, it's going to be so anxiety-provoking, you're going to cause pain to your partner, you're going to cause pain to yourself, et cetera, that you kind of push it off and push it off, and it can lead to situations where, you know, you end up with the wrong person for a really long time. So that's just an example. Um, but there, you know, this comes up in all kinds of ways where we just kind of try to avoid having to deal with the situation. So a couple of things I think can be useful in situations like this. Um, the first is asking a question of yourself, what choice would I make if I cared about my future self equally to my present self? Right? So that just can help you clarify, are you kind of overweighting the immediate ramifications and underweighting the long-term ramifications? Um, another clarifying question can be, what choice would I make if I still didn't want danger, but I had no fear, right? There's a difference between danger and fear. Like, you could still say, well, rationally, I don't want to put myself in danger. But what if I had no fear? Would I act differently? Um, and I think that, that maybe that can give you some clarity. The second one I want to mention is sunk costs. You've probably mostly all heard of this. The idea of the sunk costs is that once you've invested a lot of time or energy or effort into a project, it feels really painful to let go of that project if you, if you abandon it. Part of what's going on is that as long as you keep working on it, you can still tell yourself that you haven't wasted all of that effort. But as soon as you abandon the project, now you have to kind of grapple with, oh, it's all wasted. Of course, all the effort you put into it is already gone, whether you continue with the project or not. So what really matters is the future prospects of the project, 
not the past prospects. But we get really stuck on, oh, I've invested so much, I have to keep going. Um, so a couple clarifying questions you can ask yourself there. How good are just the future prospects of the project? Not at all considering what's gone on in the past. Um, and another interesting question you can ask yourself is, suppose I wasn't working on this now, but I had the option to start working on it and slot myself right into the position I'm in now, would I do it? Would I, would I begin again today? Um, and that can help clarify. Funnily enough, I think effective altruists sometimes almost have the opposite of the sunk cost fallacy in some way, where they'll be like, okay, I want to do the best thing. The problem is figuring out the best thing is really hard, and like all kinds of considerations could change my mind. So I, I sometimes see this thing of flipping between projects, you know, work on a project for a few months. Oh, wait, maybe that's not the best thing. Maybe this other thing's the best thing, and then work on that for a few months. And this can actually also be equally problematic because you can just end up accomplishing nothing because you just always change your mind about what the thing to do is. So I think a, sort of a a way to deal with that kind of problem, if that's more the problem you have, is committing for a certain amount of time. Say, I'm going to work on this for a year, or I'm going to work on this for two years. So not reevaluating constantly, but more having periods of reevaluation where you're like, okay, now it's time to reevaluate. The last um, pitfall I want to mention is overanalyzing. Because you know, we've talked about a lot of approaches for analyzing your situation, but sometimes analyzing is overanalyzing, right? And I think it's really useful to remember that every decision has a certain amount of time that's worth investing in it. And anything more than that is excessive, right? If you're thinking about what TV show should I watch tonight, if you spend an hour figuring it out, that's definitely not a good use of your time. But if you're making a really important career decision that's going to affect you for 10 years, well, yeah, you should probably spend well more than an hour really thinking about it, right? Um, so the first clarifying question here is, how much time is this decision really worth? Is it worth a little bit of time, a lot of time? And really trying to just invest the amount of time that's worth it for the, that type of decision. Um, another thing that can be useful is sometimes with a really important decision, people will just get endlessly stuck in a loop of like researching and thinking and feeling like they're not making progress. So I think a, a useful heuristic you can keep in mind is, okay, I'm going to say that once I do an additional hour of research, if, if my confidence level is not changing at all, maybe I'm just hitting diminishing marginal return and maybe I just need to make my choice. So you kind of say, once you get to this point where additional research is no longer doing anything, okay, maybe now I'm going to make my decision. All right, solo exercise for you now. This is on the other side, the back side of your worksheet. And I want you to look through this list of decision-making pitfalls. You'll have five minutes. Uh, please review the list and put a check next to the ones that you think you'd benefit the most from working on. Please only check between one and three. I don't want you to put like seven of them. That's not helpful. Just to prioritize the one to three that you think are most useful. And then among those, I want you to pick the one that you think you'd most benefit from, the single one, and write a statement at the bottom about what you'd like to do differently in future decisions, taking into account this pitfall. So you got five minutes. Oh, it's on the sheet. Yeah, on the back, yeah, the list is on the back side of your sheet. All right, last group exercise for you. I want you to go back with your partner one more time. Tell them about what pitfall you chose, why you chose this one as your highest priority one to work on, and then what you're committing to do differently for future decisions. All right, so find your partner again. You'll have two minutes each. I'll tell you when two minutes is done to switch. Um, so tell them what pitfall you chose, why you chose this one, and what exactly you're committing to do differently in your future decisions. Uh, you got two minutes. Go. So we're almost done. We only have two minutes left. Sorry we don't have more time. I would have been happy to do more time with you all. Um, there's only four things I want you to remember, if you remember nothing else, from this little workshop today. Um, the first is that when you're making a really important decision, 
consider what values of yours are at stake and what the trade-offs between those values are, and that can give you extra clarity. Um, the second is, when it's an important decision, consider more options. Start with a brainstorming phase where any idea is a good idea, generate as many ideas as you can, and then narrow down from there. Third, uh, don't go it alone with important decisions. Remember, people can help you because they have expertise or experience. They can help you because they're just wise people. Or they can just help you by asking open-ended questions and helping you clarify your thinking. And fourth, remember the decision-making weakness that you indicated on the sheet that you want to work on. Remember the commitment you made to try to work on it um, to make your decisions better in the future. Um, so with that, I'll just point you to some other resources. I mentioned our decision advisor tool. If you're making a difficult decision, it will walk you through a systematic process and help you think through it. Um, you can find our website, clearthing.org. We also have more than 70 other free tools there covering many topics like habit formation, cognitive biases, things about happiness, many other things there. Check out. And finally, I do also do a podcast. So if you found this interesting today, um, you may want to check out my podcast. I talk to brilliant people about decision making and many other topics. It's just called Clear Thinking as well. And um, I'm also having office hours are happening right now in Junior Ballroom 4, which I think is right over there. So if you want to come chat with me, feel free to come chat. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.